We are six women. We are wordsmiths. We are magic. We are curious. We are contradictions. We are wanderers. We are people of many names. We are mind trekkers and story weavers. We are adventurous spirits. We continue to grow. We've been baptized in the font of dream and memory. We are partly truth and partly fiction. I am Gail. I am Joanne. I am Margie. I am Katie. I am Marion. I am Mary. We are the Mystic Order of East Alabama Fiction Writers. Hello and welcome to the Mystic Order podcast. So glad y'all are listening because we got a fun show about weird stuff today. I am Mystic Mary and we're going to go around and see who is here today. Hey, I'm Mystic Margie. I'm Mystic Joanne. And I'm the Queen, Mystic Gail. And we're short two mystics, Katie and Marion, but they are always with us in spirit. Are they traveling in New Zealand? Yes, they are. They're actually, they're off headhunting. <laughs> I, I meant that like literally headhunting. Oh, I don't think they need to go to New Zealand for that, do they? They can just go to darkest Africa? Papua New Guinea, I think. Okay. That's where they need to go. Yeah, luckily they turned down that trip to there see the Titanic on the submarine. <laughs> no, isn't that scary? I know, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's see. As we usually do, we like to start off with um, talking about our mystic weeks. So who here had a week that was mystic? Well, Margie, of course. Well, Margie, let's hear about your mystic week. Well, my mystic week was visiting my grandson in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And it was really fun. We got, he's nine years old. We got to see his baseball game. And we also got to just go hiking with him and do all kinds of fun stuff. So it's always fun to drive up to Yellow Springs because it's kind of a trip. And how old is young Song now? Y- yes, Vin Song is nine years old. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and he's a really pretty good baseball player, too. Amazing. We used to call him Baby Buddha because he looked just like a little <laughs> baby Buddha sitting in a shopping he's, cart. He's still cute. Wonderful. He's still a little, he but so he's cute. gotten taller. Well, we tried our hand at arranged marriages. Does he know yet that he and Annabelle have... That we've arranged their marriage. He doesn't know it yet. We'll have to wait and get them together. Although he does, he's not opposed to girls. Yeah, Annabelle doesn't know yet either. She doesn't know about the art project that Marky made. I still have their featuring the love. I still have their boxes. (laughs) Their love letters to each other yet to happen. Uh, All right, Griffin and Sabine (laughs) of our children. Joanne, was your week mystic? I had, not to outdo Margie, but I had two weeks of mystic moments. That does kind of outdo me. Yeah, (laughs) because the Austrians came to Alabama. Hmm. My son, who lives in Austria, brought his two twin children here, and they traveled on an airplane for the very first time. And he also brought his wife, of course, and his mother-in-law. And Where do those people sleep in your little teeny tiny house? We may do. We're a very close family, always have been. That's why I don't need Did that. the mother-in-law sleep on the floor? No, 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 no. Elizabeth actually had her own room. She had, um, I made up my office for Elizabeth to sleep in, and she was comfy. And then the babies slept, they did sleep on a pallet on the floor. And they, I brought them these cute little mattresses to sleep on, but 
they woke up one <laughs> evening and one of them was under the bed because <laughs> mm-hmm. small children, they're two and a half, roll as they sleep. So, But we um, had a bilingual two weeks because Elizabeth speaks very little English and I could not get Louisa my granddaughter to speak English. I kept saying she needed to speak English for Opa. Jimmy doesn't speak German. And so we talked different languages, and David would flip-flop between English and I found that if you yell English loudly, they understand. (laughs) Yelling usually helps. Yeah, I used to do that with all the foreign students in my classes. I would just yell the lesson rather than try to figure out their language. But just speak real loudly, and they'll get it. That comes along with the ugly American theory. (laughs) Well, my mystic week was I had two things happen. I had the last surgery on my eyes, and because I could see Mm. and read, I began sending the mystics all the things they needed to do, and I know they appreciate it so much. Thank you, dear. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Because we're trying to finish our book. Yeah, we were floating along with nothing to do, Gail, till you came along. Yeah, I was worried for you guys while I was blind. Oh, my God, she can see again. (laughs) (laughs) But the second... Mystic Week happened yesterday. My husband and I went fishing at a friend's farm, and the farm's going to be sold Friday, so it was our last chance. So we go out to Chambers County, back into the the woods, to this wonderful lake, and it's between horrible showers that are going on in Alabama, and we catch 50 brim, huge brim. That's magical. And when we packed up to leave... We got all packed up in the car, and the storm came. And I looked at my husband, and I said, that was a perfect day. And then he tried to turn on the truck, and it wouldn't turn on. So it wasn't <laughs> such a perfect day. <laughs> but still a mystic week. Plus, if I had called all these friends that say, anytime you need some help, call me, they couldn't have found us in a million years. But the owner of the farm was on the golf course. Now, where you are on a golf course in this weather, I don't know. But he called one of his helpers to drive half an hour and rescue us so all was well in the end let me ask you a question did you by any chance bring a banana on your fishing boat no (laughs) no bananas (laughs) i just learned that it's really bad luck to have a banana on a boat oh yeah every fishing boat i've ever been on has a sign that says no bananas (laughs) right yes there'll be no bananas no bananas (laughs) today today. no bananas (laughs) Uh so it used to be that it was a woman was bad luck on a fish on a boat but we've been replaced because she was carrying bananas that's so typical of men to replace (laughs) the women with a banana Oh, dear. Yes. Yeah. Well, we, we won't go there. It might have been, well, you didn't have a banana, so we can't blame that. Well, Gail, just imagine if you hadn't said that was a perfect day, your truck would have just started right on up. Yeah. That's a jinx. Uh, probably. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it makes for a good mystic week. <laughs> was your mystic week, Mary? I'm going to squish my, my mystic summer into a week. I've had the funnest, the fun, I've had the funnest summer Ever. 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 It's the funnest (laughs) because I have been either horseback riding, kayaking in my new kayak, no bananas, or have having my grandchildren with me. And it's been delightful. And right now the grandchildren are with me. And Ruby, 
the youngest one, even though she could have slept in a choice of about four different beds, she made herself a pallet on the floor last night because it's fun to, you know, sleep on the floor. Yeah. Not for me, of course. (laughs) For her. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, it's been, I have really enjoyed my, in between these rain showers, you can find me on a horse. And Mary has to go back to work in August. And I'm going back to work in August, but I'm going to have some more fun coming up but anyway that's been my mystic summer funnest summer ever funnest Funnest. i'm not sure that's a word and um i'm sure we've all been reading good books and watching good movies and doing those kind of things so what about our mystic opus corner any recommendations i have a really good one of course i couldn't read for a while because my eyes were different one could see and one could not so if i put on my glasses you know, one I could see and the other one, the good one could not. So, but I finally read a great book and it's called 100 Years of Lenny and Margot. It's by Marianne Cronin. It's about a person who's quite young and a person who's quite old and their artwork and you add their lives together and it makes for 100 years. And that was the name of the show they put on. That's a simplistic explanation. It's yeah. a very good one. The one, it's the 100 Years of Lenny and Margot. Okay, I wrote it down so we... Who is that author again? Marianne Cronin, C-R-O-N-I-N. I have a good one. I mean, I'm sorry, Margie. Oh, okay. Uh, I started reading one called Babel, B-A-B-E-L. It's by R-F, K-U-A-N-G. She's Asian. I think she's Chinese. Anyway, it takes place in Oxford in the 1830s. And it's all about the school of translation there. Hmm. And the people they import from like China or India to come and to be the main translators. And they use these silver bars that they translate on. It's very, it's a fascinating book. But if you're really into linguistics, Joanne, you would love this. And derivation of words. They talk about that a lot. Oh, I would love that A lot in that. And it's, I'm, I'm only about halfway through it. It's, to me, it's fascinating. Is it you know. a fiction book or a nonfiction? It's it's fiction. And what about yours, Gail? Mine's definitely fiction. Okay. Mine is fiction. She makes up, she studied at Oxford. She makes up some things about Oxford. And at the prologue, she says, you know, these things really didn't happen. Right. Historical then. fiction. Yeah, it's historical. But anyway, but this thing about the whole Translation Institute, I'm sure it existed, but I don't know if some of it existed. Yeah. It seems kind of far-fetched to me. But they have one, they I have have one out in, where is it now? California. And I'm trying to think. I always wanted to go there. Um, they have linguistic schools all over the, yeah. Anyway, you would, I mean, every all of the mystics would love this book, especially Joanne, since you're kind of more of a person that speaks some about languages among us. Languages <laughs> and where words come from. I was te- talking with my little group of Latinas the other day, and they were wondering why. <laughs> Do you why. keep this group in your home? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I can. What yes. is your little group of Latinas? <laughs> I think you better explain Sunday it. School. It's oh, Sunday school. I see. Sunday it's a school. Sunday school class, and they were wondering why the Bible had different translations. And so I asked them, I said, what's a burrito? And they looked at me like I was a crazy woman. I said, I said it's something you eat. I said, no, it's not. It's a little donkey. And they mm-hmm. got it, you know, because uh-huh. a burrito means little donkey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm trying to understand this myself. Maybe I ought to go to the Sunday school class. <laughs> I just saw this very funny little TikTok or something about 
if they were calling it white white people tacos. <laughs> it's the exact tacos that I've always eaten in my life. You know, you get the little Ortega shells and little yes. shredded <laughs> lettuce and chopped up tomatoes. And, uh-huh. I mean, the thing. And I didn't know that that was like something that everybody's making fun of. And people are like, are you kidding? You actually served that at your house growing up? And I'm like, growing up, I still do. And I call it tacos. <laughs> So <laughs> we, we've made that fancy. We do the very same thing you do, but then we put the uh, chips down. Oh, and instead of the taco shell on top, so we call it salad taco salad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is now called white people taco salad. I'm not sure why. <laughs> well, both Bob and I are white, so yeah. Okay. I, oh, I think it's like I said. Oh, thanks. But I'm, are you reading that or listening to that book, Mark? I've got the book, but I'm also listening to it. So I'm doing both. Like I'll listen and then I'll read it. Um, I may borrow it from you. You may. You, you may. Although I gave it to Wayne for Father's Day, so you might have uh, to oh, wait. Darn. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you mean you gave it to Wayne for Father's Day and then you took it away and started reading it? Well, yeah, I've been reading it and I gave it to him. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. well, he didn't know why, I was reading it. Why would you not? Why would you give your husband something if you can't take <laughs> you it? You don't away? want it. <laughs> he can't read. I, I gave him like four books. He can't read them all. Dude, I bet you give him little black dresses too. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's just wrong. What are you reading, Joanne? What have you read lately? Brother to a Dragonfly. Has anyone ever read that by Will D. Campbell? And the foreword in the book is by Jimmy Carter. And I had read, I mean, it's been sitting on my shelf for years. What's the name of the book again? Brother to a Dragonfly. Okay. And it's written by, he's... um, Campbell is a preacher, I believe, and he writes, but he's writing about his brother that was, no spoiler, but he dies um, in the book about... That's pretty spoiling, if you ask me. I know, but the the language and the description of the Old South is priceless, and talking about, like, where a black man gets shot, and his mother coming with a group of women keening, and that he just has a wonderful eye for the different things of the South. And back in a, a, a year where, well, I, I can't describe it other than, say, the Old South, where there was segregation and things like that, and how his parents taught him, or his grandfather actually taught him, that there should be no segregation. He said, after the war, meaning the Civil War, <clears throat> he said, that's all over now. Mm-hmm. So how he grew up, in, a, in the South, but with a different ideology of the South. It's really, it's really well done. Okay. Oh, oh, go I ahead. Ha- I have another book. That oh, was no. Really oh. You can only have well, one, Margie. Well, uh, this one I took to Song. It's a children's book, but it's really good. And Marion would love this book, too. It's called The Eyes and the Impossible by Dave Eggers. He said ice or eyes? The eyes, E-Y-E-S, and the impossible. And it's all in the voices of animals. And they're, um, it's, it's, the cover is made out of wood, and the illustrations inside are old master's paintings <gasps> that the illustrator has inserted the little dog, who's the narrator of the book, into these scenes. Oh, so it's cool. like this, you know, Gainsborough landscape. It's got this little running dog in it. Like Pete the Cat. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of, it's really a... It's a great little book, anyway. Well, Ben Song lend it to me. Well, you have when to go, you, get, go, you see have to him. go up there. But <laughs> it's it's a beautiful little book. But it's very, very. I I really loved it. 
And, and you so get him the neatest little books. Last time we were talking about the book that you gave him was what is cute or what is ugly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cute and ugly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've read some really good books lately, but the best book I've read in a long, long time is called This is Happiness. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. You said that last time. And no, it everybody best, else said it. it. It is the best book By Niall ever. Williams. It is so good. And it was recommended to us by our friend Rita Grimsley-Johnson. Yes. Y'all, it's so good. It's got all the elements. The stranger comes to town, you know, coming of age. It's just delightful. So if you You haven't read it. My book club read it, and I I think I was the navigator. I don't remember. But the thing that impressed me about the whole thing is it's a teeny tiny subject, just electrifying a town that broadens itself into all aspects of fiction and life. It's lovely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's, there's also, you know, quests for love and all kinds of things going on in there. It's really, really, and it's well, well written. I mean, it's beyond well written. Yeah. It's gorgeous. So You said that last podcast, but it deserves two podcasts. It or does. We said it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, y'all have said it every podcast. I just thought it was my turn. We'll do it Because I just read it. I know. If there's anybody out there that hadn't read it. next time. I'll have to, I'll, yeah, I'll read it next and uh, then I can recommend it also. But I also <laughs> read The Alchemist. Pa- Paula Coelho. How do you, am I saying it right? That's an old book. It's old and it's just almost, you know, got a cult following and it was a lot of fun. I had never read it before and it was one of those things that I think I should have read a long time ago. I think I read that a long time ago. I think I read ago. it a long time it's ago. Another too. Somebody it's another like somebody in search. Five years old. Oh, I think it's older than that. But really? It's, it's very short. Too. I don't know. Okay, I should look and see when it was written. I'm not sure. Okay. I also read Man's Search for Meaning. That was, Dude, ooh, that little that was hard. <laughs> Do the little summary of that. I'm the Alchemist? My, uh-huh. Little. Well, he's... Oh, gosh. See, I wasn't planning on talking about it. Now I can't even think of the main character's name, even though I heard it a million times. He's off on his life's quest to find purpose in life. Right, and he's, right, right. He heads off to look for the pyramids and the buried treasure and of course that's not what he finds oh right i remember so, i remember it now yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's very sweet and a lot of fun all right gail just got up and disappeared <gasps> so she does that mystically she's there and then she's gone marion can do it too it's wonderful so, since she's not here i'm going to go ahead and talk about another book a fourth book okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay go and ahead, it's Mary. called this immense world and Ooh. i'll tell you the author later it is about how animals see the world, except that it's, and this is totally nonfiction, and it's not for people who are not interested in biology because it kind of can get deep in the weeds, but it's a very interesting look at how animals sense the world without using the way we see the world as the frame of reference. It's a real kind of makes your head twist around a lot to, I love to try to think about something outside of anything you can possibly experience. I'm going to so. brag on one of our mystics. Mary has a column that she, in this month especially, she has written some delightful pieces about animals and the animal kingdom. And for Father's Day, she wrote about beavers and what good daddies beavers are. <laughs> but, but you try to do that too, even though you talk about how cute they are. And yes. <laughs> this, you know, you try to let people see those animals from the animal's point of view, and that's what I Maybe. love about it. Well, if, if Mary has four books, then I'm going to do a mystic stamp of excellence for Netflix. Go for it. It's called Living. Living. Oh, the, I saw that. Oh, my God. Wonderful. That was good. And it stars Bill, and I thought his last name was Knightley, but it's Knight with a Y. Nighty? <laughs> no, it's that's that's right. Well, what is it? A series or just a no? no it's a movie, it's a mo- and it's based on a to- an, an 1886 novella by Tolstoy called "The Death of Ivan 
Alvich. And I didn't realize this, Bill Knightley was nominated for an Academy Award for playing in this film. Yeah, huh. it's really excellent. And it's on Netflix. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was it's a great movie. I wish movie. I had Netflix. We don't have that. Are you not offered that or are you not paying for it? We're not paying for it. Okay, Joanne, that's why you got money. I tell you what, you have talked to Jimmy Camp because I don't even know how to turn our television on. <laughs> <laughs> ask ask your grandchildren. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Two more years. Next time they visit, they'll show you how. Turn yeah. on Granny's TV. <laughs> Annabelle and Ruby could do it only, all now. Only huh. if it's Paw Patrol or Peppa Pig. Well, I, I sent this to my friend Carolyn Hunter, who's always begging her net, uh, Facebook audience for things to watch. So I sent that to her, and she wrote me back. She said, oh, Gail... I went through five Kleenexes, but it was worth it. (laughs) It was. It It was very, very good. Okay. Okay. So is it time to get weird and phenomenal and strange? You know, the assignment was to do something historically interesting to you. Okay. And it could be a person, a place, a volcano, a thing, uh, any kind of happening. And with the exception of the queen, everybody wrote about a person. Yeah, I yeah. It took me a long time to, to wrap my head around this one, but I got so involved in my weirdness that I dreamed about my weirdness last night. Who? Oh wait, we're going to start with Margie because she actually is going to tell us about the most interesting person in the world. It's the real, the most, real most, most interesting, interesting person in the world. So what, I thought who? that was me. Yeah, wait, besides is the, the queen. <laughs> besides the queen. Okay. Whether exploring the Arctic or fighting Nazis, Peter Fruchin did it all. And the short list of Peter Fruchin's accomplishment includes escaping an ice cave armed with his bare hands and frozen feces. Wait, what did he do with his frozen feces? He made it into a knife. Whoa! (laughs) I know that would kill me dead. (laughs) Wow! Uh, That would kill me dead. Okay, escaping a death warrant issued by the Third Reich officers... And being the fifth person to win the jackpot on the game show, the $64,000 question. Those those people were cheating, too. Um, City. Did you know that? uh, Yes, but... not him, though. He was the most interesting man. He was the most he interesting was man. Look, if he can carve his own feces <laughs> and use it for a survival tool, then he can just have those jackpots. $64,000. So this comes from an article written by Katie Serena from The Guardian, and it's really excellent. So I'm going to read some of it. And I'll, However, the life adventurer, explorer, author, anthropologist Peter Fruchin can hardly be contained in a short list. He was born in Denmark, 1886. His father was a businessman, wanted nothing more than a stable life for son. So his father's behest, Fruchin enrolled at the University of Copenhagen, began to study medicine. However, long before uh, Fruchin realized that a life indoors was not for him, uh, he realized that. His father craved older instability. Fruchin craved exploration and danger. So naturally, dropped out of the University of Copenhagen, began a life of exploration. So in 1906, he made his first expedition to Greenland, and he and his friend, Kuhn Rasmutin sailed the, uh, from Denmark as far north as possible before leaving their ship and continuing. to the Rasputin. Uh, the, from Russia. Uh-huh. <laughs> so maybe quite so. interesting character himself. <laughs> <laughs> they continued by dog sled for over 600 miles. On their travels, they met and traded with Inuit people while learning the language and accompanied them on hunting expeditions. The Inuit hunted walruses, whales, seals, even polar bears, but Fruchin found himself right at home. After all, his 
his six foot seven structure made him uh, uniquely qualified to handle taking down a polar bear. And before long, he made himself a coat out of a polar bear. He uh, killed himself. Oh, well, that was not six nice. Was that with his feces? No, he did. <laughs> so it, they established a trading post in Cape York, uh, Greenland, and named it a tool. The name came from the term Ultima Tool, which in to medieval cartographer meant a place beyond the borders of the known world. The Aren't po- our pens called tool pens? They are. I know. That's, you know. This <laughs> one has, spelled the same. No, it, this one has it's an H in it. ink beyond the known <laughs> world. Beyond the known world. <laughs> ink to reveal. <laughs> yeah. The post would serve as a base for seven expeditions known as the tool expeditions that would place between... 1912 and 1933. So he lectured visitors on Tool, the Inuit culture. He ends up marrying an Inuit woman and having a couple of kids. One of his first expeditions, he was embarked upon a test theory that claimed a channel divided Greenland and the uh, and the Perry land. The expedition involved... Slow a, down just a minute. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, between what and what? Between a channel that divided Greenland and the P-E-A-R-Y land. The expedition involved a 620-mile trek across ice Greenland wasteland and culminated in Fruchin's famous ice cave escape. During the trip, which Fruchin claimed in his autobiography, Vagrant Viking, oh, his first successful trip across Greenland, the crew got caught in a blizzard. He attempted to take cover under a dog sled, but ultimately found himself completely buried in snow that quickly turned into ice. At the time, he hadn't been carried his usual amount of daggers and spears, so he was forced to improvise. He fashioned himself a dagger out of his own feces and dug himself out of the cave. His improvisation <laughs> continued when he returned to camp. He improvisation, found, I'll say. He, he, took, <laughs> he returned to camp, and he found that his toes had become gangrenous and his leg had to be taken over by frostbite. Doing what a hardened explorer would do, he amputated the gangrenous toes himself, sans anesthesia, and had his leg replaced with a peg. From time, on, from time to time, Fruchin would return home to his native Denmark in the late 1920s. He joined the Social Democrats movement, became a regular contributor to the uh, Polikana newspaper. He also became the editor-in-chief of another magazine owned by the family of his second wife. He even became involved in the film industry, contributed in the Oscar-winning film Eskimo, Mala the Magnificent, which was based on a book written by him. During World War II, Peter found himself in the central political drama. He never tolerated discrimination of any kind, and any time he heard someone express anti-Semitic views, he would approach them, and in his 6-7 glory claimed to be Jewish. He was also actively involved with the Danish like resistance. George Santos? Yes, with the Danish resistance. He fought Nazi. Is George Santos six foot seven? No, and he's not no, Jewish But either. he's not Jewish either. Jewish. <laughs> he fought Nazi occupation in Denmark. In fact, he was so boldly anti-Nazi that Hitler himself saw him as a threat and ordered him arrested and sentenced to death. Fuchin was arrested in France, but ultimately escaped the Nazis and fled to Sweden. During his busy... Uh, an exciting lifetime. He managed to settle down three times. So he was married to an Inuit woman, and then he uh, she succumbed to the Spanish flu, and then he married a Danish woman, and her father was the director of Denmark's National Bank, very 
you know, good for him. And then he ultimately would run a magazine owned by her dad. And that would last 20 years before the split. And then in 1945, after fleeing the Third Reich, he met Danish-Jewish fashion illustrator Dagmar Cohen. The pair moved to New York City to escape Nazi persecution, where Cohen had a job working for Vogue. Oh so my gosh, he's now he, is the most he moved man to in New York. He joined the New Yorker's Exploration Club, where a painting of him still hangs on the wall amongst uh, taxidermied heads of exotic where a wildlife. What hangs on the wall? His Ta- picture. His picture. A picture oh. of him among heads of exotic wildlife. <laughs> I guess he was exotic wildlife. <laughs> and Lord. the rest of his days are relatively quiet for him. He eventually passed away at the age of 71 in 1957, three days after completing his final book, Book of the Seven Seas. His ashes are scattered over Toole, Greenland, where his life as an adventurer began. Okay, how did he die? I think he died of pneumonia. Uh, Let's see. It certainly uh, wasn't old age because he was a young man at seventy one. Well, seventy one is the new no. thirty one. That's yeah. right. Back, That's what back I'm then, though, that was yeah. that was old. So I do have one comment about the frozen toes. Uh huh. A lot of that happens in the Yukon. He could have donated them. Well, that's what I'm about to say. In the Yukon, there are a lot of frozen toes and, that get cut off, and there's a drink you can get in a bar oh, called yeah. the oh, Toe no. Drink. Yes. Oh, and it's no. a frozen toe that comes out and on a bed of salt. And do we know that partook of the frozen the toe Mystic drink? Prince. Yeah, the you Mystic can Prince. hear that story on a podcast, That I bar is in, it's not in Whitehorse, it's in the, the gold town. Yukon, yeah, where it is. one town. I forgot the name, but it's very funny. You can kiss the. You have to kiss the toe and take the drink. Oh my goodness! Oh. Well, and it's frozen. Lots and, it's lo- and when that toe gets old, there's more where that came from. Yeah, the Yukon. Okay. Everywhere you look, there's just frozen well, toes. That's right. <laughs> Self amputated by fecal knives. When Katie and I were Oh yeah, very handsome. I don't have a picture of him from Vogue with a polar bear coat. He kind of looks like the guy on the the commercials that is right. the, the most you know. Fa- <laughs> yes. I mean, he really does. He looks like. But the what guy. does that guy drink? He's he's advertising. Corona. Corona. Is it Corona? Yeah. Corona or some yeah. the most interesting man in the world. So yeah. he's got some a competitor. Sort of but you know what? He at six seven. Just to be six seven back in the thirties. Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, he was a monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No wonder Hitler was so afraid of him. Yeah. So Hitler was like five three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All those said little. the shortest person in the world. <laughs> well, I, I admit that I'm short. I, I I have mirrors. I know what I look you like. Go around exterminating <laughs> people tall. about it. <laughs> I tell you, what, remember, I am the uh, fairy armadillo. Pink fairy armadillo. Oh, pink yes, fairy the pink armadillo. fairy armadillo. I sent Small, that to all my friends that believe mighty. in astrology, and they didn't think it was funny one bit. <laughs> Small, <laughs> Which animal mighty. are you? <laughs> yeah, that okay. was pretty good. Okay, Who's so next? there's Peter. Who's next, Joanne? Who do you have for us today? Well, I have um, a person and a, an event. Pick, um, pick and one this, for now. This, well, this they're both the same. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> This person had an event. Yeah, this spoke to me because I have run a marathon. Back in the 60s, the late 60s, women were not allowed to run the Boston Marathon. There was a lady who did run, but she was not registered. Bobby Gibb, in 1966, ran it unofficially. She kind of hid in in the crowd. 
and finished with a very, very good time of 3 hours, 21 minutes, and 40 seconds ahead of two-thirds of the runners. But because she didn't register and she didn't wear a bib, she was not considered an official entrant. The first woman to officially run was by the name of Catherine Switzer. And in 1967, she was studying journalism at Syracuse University and was working on her, actually, yeah, she was working on her degree, and she decided that she was going to run the marathon. She, but most people just determined that it it was, the marathon was too strenuous for fragile women, Mm -hmm. but she talked the coach at Syracuse into allowing her to train and practice, And he said, if you run the distance in practice, I'll be the first to take you to Boston. And so by 1967, she was running courses of 20 miles or more. Now, they tell you never to run the actual marathon. And for people who do not know, before you get there, that's just a rule of training. Um, And so by running 20 miles... don't actually run that... 26, distance or 20, the tr- yes. actual course? The, well, both. You don't run the actual distance before you run the marathon. I don't know why, if it's superstition or what. And what is the actual distance? 26? Actual distance is 26. 26.6 yeah. miles. How long it's it took what, the dog to get to Nome, Alaska or something? Yeah, it's 100 kilometers okay. and comes from the uh, man who ran from wherever to marathon to announce that some... Roman emperor had won the war and then collapsed and died. So that's what I would do if I ran the marathon. Mm. I'd I'd never hear about the war. (laughs) I'd cut through the woods. I know that. So, well, when I ran it, they put a little chip on your shoe and you had to run over these different places. Oh, so you couldn't cheat. So you couldn't cheat. And there was one place where I thought I would cheat because it was a long stretch of highway that they'd closed down. And then you came down and ran the other side across the median and then ran down the other just side. Just turn around. And you're thinking, I could just <laughs> zip over there. Cut out. You could cut out three miles. Did you run way. the whole 23 miles? I ran the whole 26. 26 point, miles? Yes. 26.2. I misspoke. Unbelievable. In fact, it was more than that because when we stopped at 26.2, we were in the middle of nowhere. And so we had to keep on going to finish. Well, anyway, Miss Gibbs paved the way. No, Miss um, Switzer, Switzer paved the way for you, huh? She did. You're standing on the shoulders of a Schwitzer. I am. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, she registered, but she registered as K.V. Switzer. And she provided, you had to provide a certificate of health, but that's how all her medical, medical records were. And so she applied. She had someone go and pick up her packet for her. And then the day of the race, with her bib on, she wore a hoodie to hide her long hair. Um, they were several miles into the course. The hoodie slipped off, and it was obvious that she was a woman. Because no men had ponytails back then. No men had long blonde hair, I guess, back then. And at this point, one of the promoters who had run the marathon many times himself, a guy by the name of John Jock Simple, went irate. 
and That's he had he's simple and a jock and a jock <laughs> simple yeah, he's a, a simple jock, simple jock. <laughs> he's a little uh, he was a little let's see a scotsman who had run the, the the course several times himself and when he saw somebody running the course and i ran Di- disney and of course people were dressed up as minnie and mickey and all sorts of characters but he saw someone running the course with a snorkel and flippers and he he just whacked him and beat him up. <laughs> he sounds like a sweetheart of a so guy. So at this point, when he found out that a woman was running the marathon, he jumped off the press truck and ran after Switzer and tried to pull her bib off, which is the, the number uh. you wear, and began attacking her. He tried to rip off her, her clothes, tried to Did grab she her. Did hit him with her knife? Made out of <laughs> no feces. Well, this is this is Boston, and it wasn't quite that cold. So she said, I instinctively jerked my head around, and I saw, looked into the most vicious face I'd ever seen a big man a huge man with bared teeth set to pounce and before I could react he grabbed my shoulder and flung me back screaming get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers wow this was and some you know there were people taking pictures wow. this was oh there's a sure. there's a film of that yeah, yeah. or maybe I've page. seen it from pictures exactly so. so luckily Miss Switzer was running with her coach Arnie Briggs but when Arnie tried to stop him from hitting her he got knocked down by by sampler but she had a boyfriend named tom miller 235 pound ex-football player and ranked nationally as a hammer thrower he yes. was tom. With her. Go, tom and he, miller and he took um, i have never dated a hammer thrower <laughs> he took sampler and knocked him to the ground and then they continued on, and she completed the marathon in four hours and 20 minutes. And But the attack, as I said, was was captured on film and made the, the paper, and there's some famous photos of him attacking the first woman to officially run wow. the Boston Marathon. I bet he's ashamed, or I bet he was later. He was. It said later they that he and she became good friends, and, you know, they made up, became good friends, because I think she continued to run marathons. And But his Boston Marathon was his baby, and he wasn't going to let no woman well, run good that for her. Yeah, but that's unforgivable to hit another person. In a marathon. Yeah. I mean, I can't be his friend. I won't be his friend. Is he still living? Well, I'm going to write him and tell him uh, I'm he's not probably his friend. Dead. Um, 68. <laughs> he was in his 40s then. Do the math. Probably not. He's, yeah. He could be 68. 90, I was uh, in my, uh, oh, yeah. I was 20 years old. You weren't in your 40s. And I'm 59. So now. Add, add 20 to your, yeah, add 20 years 20s. to your age, I don't think. But she was forgiving of him and understood that, you know, that was his, that was his thing. It's funny how people respond to having their things trod upon. Exactly. Some folks open their arms and say, welcome to my thing. And other people are like, get out of my thing. That's right. Get out of my thing. You know? How are the mystics? I personally am pretty wide open. Y'all come, to, y'all come do my thing with me. <laughs> no, I mean, are we inclusive into the mystic group? Oh, we well, we're not the Boston Marathon. No. Okay. Well, I think we're to me. And... I do. I, I, this might even have been my idea and one that I might regret. <laughs> but <laughs> I decided not a, on a person, but I was intrigued by the story of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex getting evicted by the Duke's father, the King of England, from Frogmore Cottage. 
And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. I'm going to do something on Frogmore Cottage. Well, I just bit off way more than I could chew. It took me hours to go through all the stuff on Frogmore Cottage. And now I'm going to make you spend time with Frogmore Cottage. First of all, there's also a Frogmore house. And one thing I found out by uh, the authority of the Internet was that a lot of people who write about Frogmore Cottage and Frogmore House don't know they're two different structures. They'll say something that happened in Frogmore House, which was the cottage, so it was very confusing. I personally did not know that. Are they near each other? They're right next door to each other. Oh, okay. But So if a pizza gets delivered to Frogmore House, it's easy just to take it to Frogmore College. The king will take it for his own, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But... Anyway, they are evicted, which um, some say they ask for it because they now live in California, in Montecito, and rarely go back to England. But now if they do go back to England, they won't be on the Royal Windsor Estate and they won't have police guards or any kind of security. So that's a problem. But to add injury to insult, the king is giving the keys of the cottage to his brother, Prince Andrew, who is, uh, no, he's not a prince, he's the Duke of York, I think. But anyway. Duke. Duke. Oh, that's Duke. Earl. Oh, that's Earl. <laughs> <laughs> so what is un- unseemly about this is that um, Andrew, the Duke of York, has committed maybe some crimes that he's maybe paid his way out of. So he's King Charles's brother. Yes. Mm-hmm. I can't stand this is to say Charles King is Charles. the oldest boy. Okay. And uh, Andrew is next in, well, he's not in next to line in the throne anymore, but he's the next child of okay. Queen Elizabeth. I may read this to so you. So he's not a prince? He was, he's, a, he's a duke. He was married to Fergie, right? No. Yes. No, no, no. He yes. was, I don't no, no, think no. he was ever married. Yes. Oh, my okay. God. He just had monarchy. ladies. Queen so. Elizabeth's second son and Harry's uncle, Prince Andrew, is reportedly getting the keys to the cottage after Harry and Meghan remove their belongings. Andrew, the Duke of York, currently lives in a much larger royal lodge, a 31-bedroom property, three miles away from Frogmore Cottage. So they demoted him. Okay. (laughs) Andrew shares the 31 bedrooms with his ex-wife, Sarah, in the Queen's Corgis. He's been leasing the Royal Lodge from the Crown Estate since 2003. But his own fall from grace has led to speculation that he's been unable to keep up with his rent and maintenance. And by the way, if you are given a royal residence, you're required to keep it up or lent a royal residence. And some of the properties of the Windsors they own, like Balmora, they bought out, outright bought. But these properties belong to the the royal estate, which also includes England. But as a working royal, Andrew made nearly 300000 yearly. But Andrew's friendship with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein and a subsequent lawsuit accusing Andrew of sexual abuse, which was settled, led to the removal of his royal and military titles. Andrew had not had, has not had any full-time paid jobs since leaving the Royal Navy, although he receives £20,000, $23,000 annual pension for his decade as special representative for international trade. But as Charles goes about tightening the royal purse strings, as he's reported said he would, 
slashing Andrew's annual grant may be the impetus for the Duke of York to downgrade. Of note, the Duke's daughter, Princess Eugenia, and husband Jack Brooks Bank are very close friends with Meghan and Harry, and were invited to live with them in Frogmore Cottage, which they moved to. And after the couple's announcement of an eviction, they moved out of Frogmore Cottage. And here's why I've really gone way too far when I chose Frogmore Cottage, because it has this long and interesting history, which I've cut down to, oh, 25 pages, but I'm only going to read 10 of them. (laughs) Okay, a little bit about Frogmore House and Cottage. Frogmore House was not built by a royal, but in 1792, it was bought by crazy mad George III for his wife, Charlotte, and she used it as a refuge from the, the court and probably from her husband, who was increasingly filled with rage and crazy. In the beginning of their marriage, Charlotte and King George were very happy. They had 15 children together. Oh, that's a little too happy. There, <laughs> well, Poor talk, Charlotte. Talk to the girl over here. Um, <laughs> anyway, Joanne only has 13 children in their family. <laughs> Nonetheless. I um, don't have 13 children. My parents have 13 yeah. children. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> well, in the beginning <laughs> of their marriage, they were quite happy. And then, uh, and she did remain steadfast and loyal to her husband, nursing him. But she died before he did. Well, after his 15 children, (laughs) my God, (laughs) how could she live? (laughs) So anyway, Queen Charlotte is enjoying the house, and she eventually builds the cottage next door to Frogmore House. She was very interested in botany and the gardens, and she's planted all the lilacs and honeysuckles and golden rain trees, and the gardens around, around Frogmore are beautiful. There are many, many, many buildings around Frogmore House on the grounds of the, the home estate, but I, for our audience, I will not go into these at this time. <laughs> I will say that Queen Victoria was very, very fond of Frogmore, visited it regularly, and wanted to be buried in the mausoleum that she had built on the grounds mm. for Prince Aww. Albert. She added to the estate further by, make, by building a tea house and a white marble Indian kiosk added to the garden. In the this second, is a cottage. <laughs> yes. Well, the, I think a lot of the confusion between house and cottage is back then, people that were quite rich and owned castles would build something huge in the country yeah. and call it their cottage. cottage. Yeah, it's a different, yeah. So different even thing. though it's 10-bedroom huge, they have events there, Frogmore House. It, was, uh, it may have been called a cottage, and that's why when people are writing about it, unless they do extensive research... <laughs> or listen to the podcast. <laughs> yes. They're going to get them confused. Are you going to tell us why it's called Frogmore? That's yes. my burning question. It's in, okay. a, it's in a wetland, and Good. there are lots and lots of frogs there. As a matter of fact, right now the mausoleum, this is my last page of the mausoleum's the last page, and I'm not there yet. Okay. It's being conserved because the wet has ruined the tile floor and things are falling from the ceiling. So that's going on probably as we speak. What so happens England. when you build in a wetland? Frogmore right. instead of frogless. <laughs> uh, Frogmore Cottage is a grade two listing. 
And what that means is the National Heritage List of England, and it means it's of special interest and cannot be torn down or changed without uh, going through the historic committee. If you're a grade one, which the mausoleum is, it's of exceptional interest to the crown and the country. The original cottage when built by Queen Charlotte was called Double Garden Cottage. And it was in the wetlands with lots of frogs, hence the name. A little timeline for Frogmore Cottage is it was built in 1801 by Charlotte. In 1840, Henry James, the father of the author Henry James, stayed in either the house or the cottage, we're not (laughs) sure which, but uh, he had a paranormal experience while staying there. According to the book Paranormal Berkshire, In 1844, the American theologian Henry James, not to be confused with his son, was staying in the house in Windsor Great Park, which is not there. It's in the home park. But whoever wrote this doesn't know that. One evening after dinner, he found himself overwhelmingly petrified with fear. This led him to believe he'd been somehow in the presence of evil. Shortly afterwards, he had a nervous breakdown. He didn't tell anyone of his experience until 35 years later when he wrote his autobiography. He described his experience in these extraordinary terms. A perfectly insane and abject terror without any ostensible cause Mm. that can only be accounted for to my perplexed imagination. Some damned shape squatting invisible to me within the precinct of the room and raying out from his fetal personality influences which began became fatal to my life. Wow. Whoa. Uh, that's scary. <laughs> Just a little devil. <laughs> Next door, there's an unknown, and this is the house, I think. There's an unknown gray man that's been seen near the mausoleum. Mm-hmm. It is said the house staff is reluctant to go into the royal mausoleum as there are shadowy figures, and it gives them a feeling of being terrified to be alone. Ooh, Nice. <clears throat> Why do English people have more supernatural experiences than most? Have you ever noticed that? No. Mm-hmm. Bad teeth. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well then, tell us more, Gail. Okay. <laughs> the next person I'm going to tell you about is Abdul Karim. Wait, 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 wait. You don't get two right off. Yeah, no, I haven't done my wife He's yet. living in Frogmore County. Oh, I thought he was oh, a basketball well. player. <laughs> I thought he was too. <laughs> well, he's Mohammed Abdul Karim. Yeah, he um, is still. So uh, this is the second person I'm going to tell you about, although many people have lived there, and I, there'll be a third, so person who lived in the cottage. And this is, like I said, it took me two days of going through the internet trying to figure out who lived where. I've not seen Victoria and Abdul on the big screen, but if you have, you know who he is. He was one of two Indians selected to become servant to Queen Victoria in 1887, which was her golden jubilee year. The 24-year-old Abdul Karim became a hit with Victoria And it wasn't long before she gave him the title of Munshi, meaning teacher, presenting him with numerous honors and gifts, including the use of Frogmore Cottage, where she visited him almost daily. Hmm. Their relationship was frowned on in the palace. They were just friends. They were close (laughs) platonic 
friends. There and you go. it led to friction with the royal household. This the, was after Albert died, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, way after. And the other members of, of, the, of the royal household felt themselves superior to the Indian. The queen insisted on taking Kareem with her on her travels, which caused arguments between her and other attendants. Kareem reportedly refurbished Frogmore Cottage and lived there with his wives from 1893. <laughs> However, following Victoria's death in 1901, her successor, King Edward VII, banished Kareem back to India, where he led a quiet life on an estate that Victoria had set up for him near Agra until his death in 1909. They were just friends. <laughs> I've seen the preview to that movie. It looked, I'm going uh-huh. to watch it now. My last person to tell you about that lived in Frogmore House is Grand Duchess Xenia Androvnia. In 1918, after the Bolshevik brutally murdered, Bolsheviks brutally murdered Tsar Nicholas II and his family, the surviving members sought refuge, and their relative King George V sent a warship to Russia to bring them to the UK. One of the family members was the king's cousin, the Grand Duchess Xenia Androvnia and her children, who after living independently for a time in England, eventually ran out of money. As a result, in 1925, they were put up in Frogmore Cottage by the king, along with several of her sons and their families, some of whom moved to nearby Home Park Cottage. I don't know where that is on the estate. And the reason is, anybody that's crazy enough to also research Frogmore Cottage, (laughs) good luck finding a map. And I've found a elementary simple map, but it doesn't tell all the buildings. You can get a listing of the buildings if you search hard enough, but you'll never find a map. But I have one I'm passing around to my mystic sisters. Tells you how long it takes to walk from one to the other. Mm-hmm. From the house to the cottage, it's a seven-minute walk, but if you're going to walk to Windsor Castle, it's going to take you half an hour. According to historians, the family's bleak financial situation meant that the house soon began to fall into disrepair. And these houses, when they're given, they're called given with grace and favor, but who occupies it is supposed to keep it up, and she couldn't do it. But a refurbishment was eventually paid by the king, who also gave her a 2,400-pound annual pension for his cousin. After his death in 1936, his son, Edward VIII, gave Xenia and her family a new home in Wilderness House in the grounds of Hampton Court. And my last little bit I want to talk about is the Royal Mausoleum and the pictures I've seen of it. I would really like to travel there, even if it is in marshland. Because it's just another cemetery. No, it's a mausoleum. <laughs> well, it's mausoleum. They put dead they, people. That's where they put buried. People. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a cemetery. Oh, well. <laughs> no. It's dead a, people are dead people. <laughs> While most British royals are entombed in St. George Chapel at Windsor, or in Westminster Abbey, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert are buried in a specially made mausoleum in Frogmore Estates at Windsor, close to London. It is listed as a grade one building on the National Heritage List of England, and it was built between 1862 and Albert died the year before, so it was really, she built it for Albert and for herself in 1871. When Queen Victoria died much later in 1901, She left a very detailed instruction of how she wanted her funeral. This included specific things she wanted inside the coffin. 
Many of the items were from her beloved husband, Albert. On January 25th, Dr. Reed carefully placed these items, and I have no idea who he is. I didn't get that far, of Queen, that Queen Victoria had requested. She wanted to be buried with her deceased husband's dressing gown and a cast of his hand and a cloak that was embroidered by her daughter, Princess Anne, who was her favorite child. Good grief. She was also buried with her reputed lover, John Brown's photo, a lock of his hair, and his mother's wedding ring. Mm. She was buried with a bouquet of Scottish heather, and her wedding ring and her wedding veil was, she asked, but have put across her face. She also requested that the public not wear black in their mourning. Instead, she preferred them to wear white, which is strange because she wore black Black. for most of her life after Albert died. So if you can believe, in conclusion, (laughs) as I suggested in the introduction of this report, there's so much more to Frogmore Estates than I've listed here. You can visit at certain times of the year, but presently the mausoleum has suffered from the watery surroundings of the marshland and is being conserved. And my question to the mystics is this. I want the mystics to tell me what they think about Harry's father evicting him and his family from the royal quarters. I got nothing because I, I don't care about those say, people at that's, all. That's, that's <laughs> family stuff. You don't mess with family stuff. Oh, well, I, Megan was not happy there. In England, they t- they kind of discriminated against her, and I mean, she is related to my husband, by the way. Her mother, Ooh. her mother was a raglan. Really? Yes. So I just <laughs> said that last podcast. So, um, and she's acting so. And well the there. raglans are from where? Scotland. Uh, they're from Wales. Wales. Uh, originally, two little raglans were accidentally went on board a ship and ended up in America in the 1600s. (laughs) Well, I'm passing around a beautiful picture of Queen Charlotte. Hey, Charlotte. She's so pretty. And then here's Henry James, the theologian, and Abdul Abdul. And I think that... And here's the picture of the inside of the mausoleum. Well, who was John Brown, by the way, that was Victoria's lover? When I got to the end of this, I wasn't about to look up any other thing. There's that song, John Brown's Body Love. That's another John Brown. Brown. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the same John Brown. I didn't know who who carried out her final wishes. I didn't look that up. But y'all certainly are free to tell me because after... Hours of sitting at the computer for two days, I decided this is enough. Karim was a good-looking man, and I think that um, Victoria was probably very much influenced by his religious beliefs because I think she had all that stuff put in there in the idea of reincarnation. Well, she was, at that point, she was Mm -hmm. in her golden jubilee, an older woman, and he was like 24 or something. I think there was a lot of influence there. (laughs) Gail, you should relate to that. (laughs) What do you mean? What do you mean by that, Margaret? (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Just shoot. If she's in her golden jubilee, you go, I do think it's strange that you can't get a map of that area. I don't, not this day. Yeah, they, they don't want people cr- crawling all over their places. Sending in drones. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mary, have you shared? I've not. I've I had a few interesting people, but I guess I'll tell you about one, and his name is Carl Tanzler, and he was born around 1900, and he's from Austria. Austrian born. There's our love those tangential connection, plus <laughs> his name was Tanzler, <laughs> and I had certainly never heard of him. And he was going about his life pretty normally, except that he was visited 
by visions of a dead ancestor, a countess, when he was a child, and then again when he was older, and the countess told him that he would fall in love and marry this beautiful dark-haired woman. Well, he didn't. He He just married somebody, and he had, you know, just this normal life, but then he went over to Cuba to work on tuberculosis patients. He was a physician, I think I said. And he he saw this woman, and it was her. It was the woman in his visions. And so I don't know what happened to his poor wife, but he he took up with the new girl. Uh And he was treating for tuberculosis, and she died. Oh. And he was so, so sad. And his her family gave him permission to build her a mausoleum. And he kept her in a mausoleum as her very nice thing to do with your dead loved ones and tucked her body inside and he was the only person with the key i didn't want anybody else to have a key and he went and visited her body all the time in the mausoleum is this in cuba Mm-mm. this oh gosh where was this mausoleum he was i think it was back in austria okay because he was only visiting so to cuba the body from cuba to austria oh heck i guess i didn't do two or three days of reading I only, <laughs> only i only looked up like three articles about him to cross-check my facts okay so anyway he visited her body every night and then along about 1933 in case you're doing a historical timeline he was seen dancing in his house with his deceased wife and also Heck, maybe he was in Cuba. Anyway, his her family started to get concerned about the fact that he was the only person who ever visited the mausoleum, and it turned out he had unburied her. He what's it called? Not entomb. What's it called? When you dig untombed. Untombed her. Untombed. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make she was uninterred. Um, anyway, he he brought her corpse into his house. Now, this is the part I don't know. Did who he was this freaking mummify the woman? Shades of Miss Emily. I know. So she'd been dead for two years, and so her body was not in good shape. So he used plaster of Paris. Oh, creep, creep, creep. Oh, it's so creepy. And he stabilized her with wire hangers and plaster of Paris and glass <laughs> eyes to, to make her look better. And y'all, you can look her up. I'm going to tell you her name because you're yes. going to want to look it up. Her name, her last name is Hoyos, H-O-Y-O-S. Her name is, oh, hold on, Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos. Maria Elena, Elena. <laughs> Milagro. Milagro, that's a good name. Yeah. I mean, it's miracle. <laughs> You're going to bring back from the dead the Hoyos, H-O-Y-O-S, and you can see pictures of her corpse. And Hoyos also means jewels. There you go. Well, he so was, anyway, then... He has had such a hard time keeping her corpse maintained. Her hair began to fall out, and so he replaced it with real human hair. Of He's, people he'd killed? Well, he had access to hair. He was a physician. I don't think he... I don't <laughs> think what? he... I don't know. What? He, I don't know how he other, got the hair. Other dead bodies? I donate my hair, but not to him. He could have just, <laughs> you know, got it from the barber shop. Anyway, stuffed her body full of rags, and he... <laughs> he cloaked it in copious amounts of perfume I to bet. keep it from stinking <laughs> as she decomposed. And he added wax to her face. So he he lived there for seven. It was it was seven years before they actually caught him with the oh death with the gosh. corpse. And they tried to arrest him for grave rob grave robbing, but the statute of limitations had run out. <laughs> And so, what is the statute of limitations on grave robbery? Me, Five years. Let me hold on just a second. Let me check my expert 
Joanne, what's I would the statute say, It depends <laughs> on whether it's a felony or a misdemeanor. And if it is a, a minor felony, hmm. it could be as short as six years, yeah. But he, the seven years, yeah, I guess. Yeah, seven was, years. It could yeah. be as short as a year. Oh, okay. So now I'm thinking this must have all happened in Cuba because here's the end of the story. After it was discovered, people were very interested. And so they brought her body out and put it on public display where over 6,800 people viewed the dead body. But eventually it was, uh, they took her to a Key West cemetery in an unmarked location. Maybe she's at Frogmore, but that's not at Key West. No, nowhere near. <laughs> they took her there because, you know, they wanted it secret because she, they didn't want people digging her back up to look at her body. Look at this. So Margie has Margie's her. pulled up the picture, and it's quite fabulous. She doesn't look that bad. Considering not for somebody who's been, been dead for nine years. That big canvas and plaster of Harris, it's kind of... Yeah. yeah. How do they keep linen looking good? That's my question. I don't know. That's those Egyptians. Maybe just painted it. The other thing that's kind of interesting is how public perception of him changed. He went from sort of being this macabre, creepy thing to, oh, he was just so in love with her. And and eventually people just came to see him as this hopeless romantic. (laughs) Yes, but did they go to his office to get his medical services? Don't ask me. I didn't do that much. I was going to say, the the biggest export out of Cuba today is... Cigars? Physicians. Physicians. You know, I dated a guy briefly in Spain who went to Cuba to get his medical degree. Yeah, they're supposed to be... That's that's their export. They're physicians. Wow. Well, I'm going to tell you two sentences about somebody else really interesting. There's an Indian uh, ascetic, ascetic, Mm -hmm. ascetic, who's had his right hand up in the air for over 40 years. And you can look him up. Just look up the man who holds his right hand up in the air. His name yep. is Amur Barati, except they just say it like Barat. And How does he why cut the he meat on his plate? In devotion to Shiva. He just doesn't. He does everything with one oh. hand. And his little his right hand devotion that he's been holding up for everything is gnarled and withered. And it's yeah. ossified. He said oh. for two years it was there was a lot of pain. But after that, he's just lost the feeling and the nerves and... Another fascinating thing to look at pictures of. But I was trying to find out. I was Googling, like, how does he sleep? You know? Yeah. How do you... I sleep with my hand over my head. I mean, but, you know... You're going to ossify if you don't watch out. But but part of of his devotion is not talking about it. And so you can't find that many answers. But there's a lot of good pictures of him with that right hand up. And it's, you know, somehow or another, it's, it's in devotion to Shiva... And it's for world if, peace. If he's not talking about it, how do you know that? Well, there's, people are talking about he, him. He, he goes like, don't mention it. But I mean, don't he just doesn't talk about it. Look him up. Look up the man I'm who sure. has held his say. right hand up for um, 40 and something sure years. When, you know, his mama asked him, why are you holding your hand up like that? He goes, it's in devotion to Shiva and world peace. Well, there, so it just, there's that whole group of, of sadhu, I guess, uh, sadhu is how you say it. I'm, I'm not the pro mystics in India who oh, yeah. self-immolate yeah, and do yeah, all yeah. these things and put themselves in starvation modes and all kinds of, you know, they'll stand for years and years. It's a, it's a, it's a thing. To, it's, a thing. it's a way of giving up your wor- connection to the world and just being as, an ascetic. Aesthetic. But it's not got a, it's different than aesthetic. It's, it's a- A-E, right? A-E. S-C. So it's not S- got the T-H. <laughs> a seat. You can become ascetic. an ascet. Ascetic. Ascetic. Anyway, 
I have some other fascinating people in history, but I think our time's about up. Margie's busy over there looking up pictures uh, of the man with his right hand up, which I highly recommend you all do. Are we going to continue on? Let's do our mystic moments. Who's got one? I do. Okay. And it comes with an an advertisement, actually. The mystics will be in Amelia Island in July. We're going to be doing a reading at what bookstore? uh, Story and Song. On what date? Song on the thirteenth. The thirteenth. It's going to be July. July. Stories and songs. Right before Bastille Day. And when I was talking with the gentleman at the hotel that we were going to stay at. He had a very thick accent, but he was very, very accommodating. And we we cut up and teased a little bit, and I asked him, well, first off, he gave me a reservation number, and the reservation number and um, audience, the our four mystics going, and the reservation number was these numbers, and then four, 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 Four. Ooh, four fours. Four fours, which are angel numbers. And then I asked him, I said, what's your name? He said, Gift. G-I-F-T. There you go. Oh, are you into We're all going to be abducted out of the hotel. <laughs> I don't know. Because of Joanne. <laughs> My mystic I moment. didn't say what hotel it was. Uh, Gail. <laughs> oh, Miss Joanne. <laughs> My mystic moment involves Joanne, too. Oh, dear. Oh, my gosh. Joanne's the only mystic that doesn't have to be concerned with hellfire and damnation. <laughs> because she's a superlative Catholic, so much so that she has a four-foot statue of the Virgin Mary that used to be in her dining room. Shh. Somehow the uh, Virgin Mary has made its way to the garage. Oh, well, she now, Joanne, needed room for the twins. <laughs> Joanne, that's what I'm thinking. Joanne gives this big party, and she does have 13 in her family and their husbands and wives. So she has to clear the way in the garage for the tables. So I drive up the next day, and unbeknownst to me, the Virgin Mary is standing in the corner in timeout. And <laughs> she I, wasn't in timeout. She, she was in timeout. She, no, she was perturbed because I put her out in the garage. She is, she's pouting. Oh. <laughs> well, she certainly looked like she was being disciplined. <laughs> I would never and that's my mystic Maria. moment. <laughs> I don't really have a mystic moment, but I am wearing a saint on my neck as an intercessor. Is that what they're called? So Joanne's my main intercessor, <laughs> but I've also got St. Teresa around my neck. She's the, oh, good. <laughs> just in case I need an extra. <laughs> and why did you pick Teresa? I do not know. She just appealed the little flower. Isn't that her name? Yep, the just little flower, St. Therese. The little she flower. just appealed. I like St. Jude. Uh-huh. I, I do too. <laughs> he's the obscure. <laughs> he's the my, he's my mother's favorite too. The the patron saint of impossible causes. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my mother's was Saint Anthony, patron what's, saint of lost she things. The, she kept yeah. losing stuff. We all had him when we were little. What's she the patron saint of? She is um, her little way, just being good by doing little things, not That's anything right. miraculous. The little way, her little way. I've got this at um, Ave Maria Grotto where I to go visit oh, every yeah. now and then and stock up on my Catholic stuff. I got Joe a glow-in-the-dark uh, crucifix because <laughs> <laughs> he got up in the middle of the night not long ago. He'd collected some boxes from the side of the road, some Tupperware, not Tupperware, Rubbermaid, and left them in the floor. After I told him to move them from some other place, he just plopped them in the middle of the bedroom floor and he tripped on them and fell. And that's not funny. He was killed by Tupperware? <laughs> but he fell. And he Rubbermaid. Said, oh, was he, it Rubbermaid? He interpreted that, interpreted that as a sign that he should not go with me on a weekend trip to the Dismal's Canyon. And I was like, 
Joe, <laughs> I, I interpret that as a sign that you should stop bringing trash in from the side of the road and putting it in the house. So I thought a glow-in-the-dark crucifix would help him on his nightly prowls around the bedroom when he's walking around amongst the treasures, which include a cat litter box that he would not let me put back on the side of the road, even though we don't have a cat. <laughs> <laughs> is that a good mystic moment? I that think I'm very good. I mystic think I moment. need to start praying to the patron saint of hoarders. Please, <laughs> please, oh please. Who is the patron saint of hoarders? I don't know. I'll have to go look. It's them lost up. causes. It's Jude. He's the patron saint of lost causes, so that'll do it. I'm Any? kind of blank on mystic moment right now. I just I, my life is. Is a moment. It's just all mystic moments. <laughs> all right. Well, all right. Well, I hope you guys have enjoyed these weird um, places and people and things from history. We have a little parting wisdom for you. Remember, everybody, be, be the, the flame, flame not, not the, the moth. moth.